This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is sponsored by The Forward. Stay up to date with unlimited access to news, culture, and opinion all through a Jewish lens. And for our listeners, for 2NJB listeners, get six months of The Forward for 15 bucks. An exclusive subscription offer for our listeners, forward.com slash 2NJB, and get six months for 15 bucks. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, IsraelNationalNews.com. And last but not least, in collaboration with Australian Jewish News, check them out at ajn.timesofisrael.com. Let's talk about your underpants. The undies you're wearing right now were most likely not manufactured in your home country. Chances are they were made in China or Malaysia or Taiwan, thousands and thousands of kilometers away by a kid who's paid a fraction of what you make in an hour. Then, with the click of a button, them undies you're wearing traveled across the globe and landed on your doorstep. And that's just undies. Information travels infinitely faster. This, in a nutshell, is the story of globalization, the incredible historic process that has connected our planet in an unprecedented way and which is now under attack, at least according to Nadav Eyal. Nadav Eyal is a renowned Israeli journalist. He's currently a columnist for Yediot Acharonot newspaper. Until recently, he was the head of the foreign desk at Channel 13 News. And before that, he was on the political beat for various outlets, including Ma'ariv and Galetzal. His new book, Revolt, The Worldwide Uprise Against Globalization, depicts the major undercurrents that he believes might threaten modern civilization. We are thrilled to be joined by Nadav Eyal to discuss his new book, as well as a subject he's been covering thoroughly for over a year, the battle against COVID. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm, I'm so happy to be here this morning. Thank Thanks you. It's a rainy morning yes. in Tel Aviv. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not an easy morning to be here. So for those of you guys watching us, you can see the book here on uh, on video, Revolt, the Worldwide Uprising Against Globalization. I'm assuming you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it everywhere right the now. The book depository, yes. yeah, wherever you get your books, check it out. Mm -hmm. And before we get started, uh, this episode is sponsored by Masa Israel Journey. Guys, if you're listening, you probably have some interest in Israel. Well, Masai's Real Journey is a marketplace for long-term opportunities in Israel. You can explore your career path. You can live out your passions. You can make a positive impact on the world. All right. During the pandemic, Masai also created options to study and work remotely from Israel. You don't need to pause your life. You don't need to know Hebrew. But if you apply and you get accepted, you get funding. So learn more at masaiisrael.org slash two nice Jewish boys. That's spelled out two nice Jewish boys. To let them know that we sent you masaisrael.org slash two nice Jewish boys. Gotta check it out. Okay, so where do we start? The book. The book. Why did you decide to write this book? I didn't really decide to write it. I returned back from the US. And, and during my time in the US, I'm talking about right after Trump was elected. So I was returning from this huge shock of uh, the 2016 elections. And I started just, you know, scribbling stuff about my recollections. And the minute I came back, 
I was offered a book deal. I was offered two uh, because it was such a huge event and I was covering it for a while. But then I understood that just writing a book about Trump winning wouldn't be a enough and b it's not really what I it's not what I gather after more than a decade of covering the international sphere and talking with nationalists and racists. And one of the things that I think I saw was that Trump is just, I write in the book, he's just the beginning of something. He's, uh, you know, a symptom. And you need to take the long, the long look here and understand that it's a mosaic of happenings uh, that are really occurring everywhere right now and are connected to a wider phenomena, which I describe in the book, and I label revolt, for lack of a better name. So, basically, there's this worldwide uprising against this phenomenon uh, of globalization. Can you kind of give us the rundown of globalization as you see it? So, basically, globalization is the deepening, and some would say, you know, uh, the... Uh, not only the deepening, but also the, the extensive nature of interdependence and interconnectedness between people, communities, economies, cultures. And, and there are a lot of definitions, but I use the label globalization. Usually it's used more in the, on the economic side, but I use it to describe a, an uprising against power structures. So sometimes I think about, <laughs> you know, uh, the uprising against globalization, and, and I think it's not accurate enough because it's not wide enough. People are resisting power structures today almost everywhere because they see them as corrupt, hollow, unresponsive to their needs, just not relevant anymore. And you see it everywhere. Sometimes their revolt might manifest itself with a resistance and a sort of uh, a demand, a resolved demand for more democracy. And sometimes they are resisting you know, liberal values, progressive values. And sometimes they are resisting, they are revolting because they fear extinction because of the biodiversity crisis or the climate crisis. And sometimes it's, it's other things. Now, sometimes when I say that, for instance, I read a really horrible review in a sort of an, an amnesty or an NGO kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know how to say it. It's, it's a sort of PDF. Uh, okay, uh, you know, on the, on the book, that they're the best way of putting out. Yes, I, <laughs> PDFs. Yeah, so so it was attacking the book because basically it was saying, you know, how do you compare between people who are demanding that we keep our biodiversity and also you're putting in the same basket uh, the deplorables, mainly the neo Nazis, the the truly deplorables, yeah, uh, the neo Nazis and the fascists you speak with, and you say they are all revolting. You know, isn't this oversimplifying? And, and, and basically, they were offended that I would put, you know, the humanist nature of people who want to make this world better, and I believe that they are trying to make this better, together with ultranationalists or even fundamentalists. And my answer is that this is not a normative judgment. I am not trying to say it's the same. I am not comparing the grievances of people or the actions. I'm not justifying the anarchists who are, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails in Athens, and I speak with them during the book while they are preparing the Molotov uh, cocktails, and I don't understand what they're doing. <laughs> but, but, you know, only afterwards, I'm sort of processing and understanding, yes, they, they were actually preparing cocktail, um, 
you know, Molotov cocktails. And I, I'm not justifying this and I'm not comparing this. But what I'm saying is that for people, power structures have become so irrelevant and they they feel an urge to replace and to append them. And I think we feel that, we sense this really everywhere. And sometimes it's defund the police. I, I don't think we should defund the police. But when I hear defund the police, I'm saying, oh, something healthy is happening in our societies in the sense that people are rethinking these structures. And we really should be rethinking these structures because when they were built, it was a different world. And we're living in a different condition today. And we should be rethinking these structures before the Chinese would be doing that or before fundamentalists would be doing that or neo-Nazis would be doing that. And they will be, you know, uh, the front line of modernity and of uh, contemporary life. And this already happened, of course, in the 1920s and 1930s when people thought that democracies are really far behind and the most advanced regimes are those who will use modern techniques like propaganda, cinema and others in order to amplify their messages. So we have been there before, liberals, I mean, liberals from all sides of the picture. So my book is very, is very much not, you know, it's not, it's not a Marxist, although some would think because of the revolt title, it's not yeah. a Marxist pamphlets on, on the one hand and it's also not a definitely not a libertarian kind of right-wing capitalist call what it tries to do is to accept that it's a dialectic nature and that globalization is a dialectic process and it has both darkness and light within it can you give us an example of a story from the book which to you is can explain this the best Uh, I think I, I really open up with a story about that Pakistani newspaper that gets burned, you know, not exactly gets burned down, but <laughs> gets taken over by a gang of fundamentalists. Uh, so the story is about a friend of mine, Amara Durrani, which I'm, I'm, these days I'm trying to send her the book to Pakistan from Israel. And <laughs> it turns out it's more of a problem than I thought initially, uh, because the two countries don't have Uh, diplomatic relations and we met on a seminar funded by the US State Department which is of course an example of the world order in which we live uh, you have the superpower and this superpower has an, an intention to bring people together under the the issue under the the aura of its liberal order and so it brings those warring tribes those Pakistani and Israelis and also people In the same center are Palestinians and Indians and we were all together in the same room and we kept uh, contact afterwards and then she or during our conversation she talked about you know interviewing the Prime Minister which was back then the late Ariel Sharon and I said you're not going to get Sharon uh, but you you will get Shimon Paris and she said of course that's that's even better and and, and Paris was at the time and Uh, at the Sharon government and we we interviewed him there was no line there was no phone line connection I think it was 2004-2005 I write about it in the book and there was no phone line connection and we couldn't do it like we do it to, today with Zoom or even I don't think that there was Skype or we weren't you know we didn't know that there were, was Skype so basically what happened is that she sent me by email her questions and I 
convinced Perez to do it. I didn't need much convincing to do. Perez was always, you know, oh, yes, you know, interviewing to uh, Pakistani, biggest in Pakistani newspaper. This was the news of, uh, world news or news of the world, Pakistani news. news I think News International. News International, right. right. Yeah. yeah, it's the biggest kind of English-speaking Pakistani media group. It's huge. It, it uh, I think it's the same as the Jung, which is the biggest newspaper. Anyway, so he said yes, and she sent the questions, and I interviewed him, and he, of course, called for a diplomatic relations between Pakistan and Israel, and he said that uh, Pakistan might have a place in the negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians, and this was classic Paris, and she published it. It was a front-page story, and it was after she did several stories about the relations, the Kalenstein relations between Pakistan and Israel, and uh, the day after, uh, about a dozen or more armed people, so with a militia, a fundamentalist militia, broke into the offices of the newspaper and beat some people up and, and also set the place, uh, you know, was set she, fire. Was she there? No, she wasn't there. It was at night. Mainly the guards were there, so no real journalists. This was a message. And the message is you published an interview with an Israeli official, highest official, for the first time in Pakistani history, calling for diplomatic relations. And we're, we're not going to live with that. And I think that story sim symbolizes, and I write about this in the book, many things. First of all, of course, the superpower operating here in order to bring people together under the liberal order. Then the idea of sort of a, a progressive notion, a universalist notion, we can get over our differences which are mainly what? I mean, history, culture, tradition, an analysis or perception of religion I might not agree with. And then this call for peace and for relations. Then come up the fundamentalists that would say, we will not let this be. We, we will revolt against your liberal progressive notions. You met, you know, in a seminar somewhere in Boston was probably great for you, but it's a threat for us. And we'll, we'll fight this. So this is an example of, re, of a really reactionary aspect of the revolt. The revolt doesn't need to be so reactionary and dark and so obvious, so to speak. But, but it is a notion of the revolt. Because on the other hand, I, you know, I could bring a much simpler story. Somewhere today, in India or in Israel, in Pakistan or in the US, a child reads or sees you know, an example or listens to music that basically gives him the message that love triumphs everything and every traditional or religious difference. And this is a narrative of the Western civilization, probably before Romeo and Juliet, the idea that you should get over and, you know, family differences, tribal differences, religion, because love is more important. And this was sort of replicated again and again, Hollywood and many other places. And then that child goes back to, to her uh, father or to her mother and says, I'll marry whoever I think, you know, I love. Then he uh, kills her. And, uh, yeah. Oh, well, and then something happens and then there's, there is conflict. Yeah. That's a classic story. Um, and that's, that's a story happening everywhere in the world today uh, because it's... Uh, traditional values or and, and and I really I don't think the people who say you know I want my children my children are Jewish I want them to marry Jewish I know that many people who listen right now probably have these kind of parents or think that and 
I don't think that this is necessarily racist. I don't think that this is... And I think that one of the things that, that happened is that during the conversation within the, the liberal order that we have built, we didn't understand that people can make these choices. For instance, Jews can choose to marry you know, people who are Jewish and not be considered uh, racist. And parents could want their children to marry within their religion and would not be uh, considered racist. You can racist. choose to be conservative. Yes, yes, of course. I, yeah, one of the things that, that the book does uh, is that I, I gave an interview to, uh, I, I don't remember uh, uh, to uh, if it was to Yediot, when the book came out. And, and I said, you know, that the book might be deemed conservative to an extent, but it's, it's not conservative. It's, it's a liberal conservative uh, perception. And we're, we're a dying breed, of course, but the idea that, I'll give you an example, okay? You can justify privacy as a right, and you can justify privacy because it's none of my damn business. So a conservative would say, you know, a, a liberal would say, I have a right for privacy. I was born with a right for privacy. Privacy is the where I can go and grow as a human being. And a conservative would say, you have a right to privacy because it's none of my damn business what you're doing. And I'm not saying conservative means using damn a lot. <laughs> okay. I'm just Although saying. it does. And I'm saying, you know, it, it means that I have no interest in what you are doing. And I have no, uh, I don't want to use the, the, the term right, but I, I don't need to shove my nose into your business. It's almost like you I, it's not that I have a right to privacy, but you don't have a right to my privacy. Mm. It's it's the 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 right dialogue or rhetoric has entered so heavily into our discussion that we three people cannot even not use the word right when we want to describe this. But what we're talking about is decency. Mm -hmm. What we're really talking about is decency. And what I write in the end of the book is that there is a lot of power in doing stuff not because we're using normative arguments in terms of rights, but we're saying it's the right thing to do. It's not the right, but the right thing to do um, because it's not done, because it's fair play, because of all these ideas of decency. And you might remember that one of the uh, rejections of empire uh, when the British decided to be empire, was by Burke, of course, which is the founder of conservative thinking to an extent. So Burke wasn't not only not enthusiastic about empire, but actually rejected it. And he rejected empire not because he was thinking about other people. He was rejecting empire first and foremost because he saw that it's changing his own society. So, uh, you know, what the book does is it, it says there is a liberal mainstream, not in the sense of liberals as a curse that they use it for left-wingers in the US, but a liberal mainstream, both right and left, and we can live together and we can, uh, you know, interact together because we have growing enemies from within this discussion. And these enemies will not, for instance, ask questions about economy, uh, you know, should we protect local production or shouldn't we? This is a really rational discussion. Someone can win the discussion and someone can lose it. 
Clinton and, and, and Bush tried, for instance, to, to do that, and they, they failed. So Paul Krugman and others will say, Stiglitz will say, you know, we tried to protect local production, it failed, and it led to us, you know, losing more jobs. So it's a rational discussion. Uh, our problem is that more and more discussions with our, in our societies do not sit within the realm of a liberal interaction, which is rational anymore. If we go back to the Pakistani journalist story, to me, what I hear, maybe I'm immediately taking it to the political side, but I hear a battle between values, like the, the battle between those who want to be free and those who want to use uh, violence uh, to, to prevent freedom from others, essentially. And so, so is that, in essence, the problem we're facing? Can't you divide the world into those two groups and no I, I don't think so because um, those who want to defund the police because they feel the police is is hollow and racist in many places it is um, what do they want they also want to be free uh, they want to be free of of that structures uh, we, from these structures which they see as as enemies are they mistaken? Some could argue they are. I'm, I'm not sure I can judge from my position as a white, privileged male. Um, uh, I, should we not use, you know, should I not use this kind of uh, rhetoric or this kind of uh, uh, understanding? I, I, I think I should. I'm, I'm fully aware to who I am. So, no, it's not about only being free. It's about being recognized. It's about being threatened. It's about people really sensing that they cannot maintain their way of life. And this revolt has a lot to do with technology, with us sitting here recording a podcast, which will be heard everywhere in the world. And it's a lot to do with the world becoming more and more global. I, I talk about a consciousness which is global. So some of the things that happen in the world is that people can converse more thoroughly coming from different places. They have more shared memories. They have more share, shared images of 9-11, of Donald Trump, of or friends. Of, of, okay. <laughs> unfortunately, up. yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> uh, of, of, uh, Ross and Rachel. Yeah, I, I was thinking of, of porn. <laughs> okay. Which I think is even more... You know, so they have these images together. And if you sit down, a 20-year-old from, from India, urban area, with a 20-year-old from somewhere else, they'll have a lot to converse, a lot more to converse than they did. Those are all Western concepts. Of what? No. I mean, 9-11, Donald Trump, and yes. even porn, it's all Western you know, the, most of those common images are Western and have Western values. Yeah, but there's non-Western ones, right? Tiananmen Square, I don't know, the Great Wall of China. Like, there's... there's... Yeah, no, but I agree. I, I agree that there is something, uh, you know, yeah, the, this is the civilization in which we live, and in urban areas around the world, this is what rules. Uh, but um, is it? For instance, anime, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, which is growing... I, I always look at Japan because Japan is so good and uh, so the West always goes at Japan, hmm, they're so crazy and then they go and do it uh, and that, that's, that's so true about TV, it's true about technology, 
And if you look at Japan and the way that anime has really entered, I'm not talking even on manga or all these things, but the idea of animation for grown-ups, uh, this is a Japanese thing. This is a Japanese phenomenon that has entered our uh, Western civilization. So, yeah. But only because J Japan decided to play the game and decided or forced upon, I don't know, and become westernized, right? To an extent. Uh, I, I don't know what's westernized. You know, when, when I visit Japan or, you know, China, even the urban, I, I feel that I'm in a different, I'm in the different civilization altogether. Uh, codes are really very different. It's very, uh, you know, you don't understand. For instance, when uh, you sit in a meeting and the other side laughs, you know, it's not the same laugh as it is when you are in New York, right? So you need to understand that. Um, so it's emerging. It's emerging. And of course, it's Western influenced, infused by the West, but it's emerging. And what we're seeing is more memories and more, and that means more consciousness. And then we see that stuff is changing. One of the examples I bring in the book, which usually is never brought in a book about globalization, is fertility. Fertility is dropping everywhere. And, and Caldwell, which is probably was the late Caldwell, uh, probably the most renowned demographer uh, at the time, said this is because of forces that are global, that are operating everywhere on the population. And these forces are globalization. And he said this is the first time in history that we're seeing a synchronized drop in fertility everywhere. And this is, you know, he saw that years and years ago, much before Elon Musk started saying, uh, this, is the, this is the crisis that we're entering. So we, we need to understand that our national structures, our local structures, there's something speaking as though they have control of our lives and they can influence our lives. But they are only playing the game. It's a facade, right? Because our prime minister, yeah, he can do all kinds of stuff, but this is a pandemic. It's global. And unless he, of course, shuts everything out and builds a big wall or is Huge in an wall. island, you know, has an ocean around him, then it's a problem. And one of the things that, and this is, you know, a pandemic is even a simpler example than economy. Interest rates. Interest rates is probably one of the best ways that the country has in order to control and regulate, you know, uh, monetarily and then fiscally its economy. And we can't lower our interest rate much more. First of all, no one can right now because they're approaching zero. But we can decide tomorrow morning that, oh, the Israeli economy is just looking great and we're going to have 5% or 4% interest rates in this country. I if mean, we you do that, can. But you can, but the, the economy will crash immediately. It will be deemed, you know, it would be, uh, the, the, the government doing that will fall in a day because everything will crash here in a day. It will first, if you have higher interest rate, first you will have an inflation of money coming from outside the country, then the bubble will burst. It will be terrible. There is a reason we don't do that. There is a reason that no industrial Western country has such a different interest rate than the American one. And the reason is that we live in a global economy. And the truth is that even the Americans don't control it anymore. If you look at the euro-dollar market, they cannot really control that either. 
So our leaders can say loads of things, but if tomorrow morning I, you know, increase taxes in this country substantially, because I'm living on the far outposts of the American empire, the meaning of that is that I will have a capital flight, you know, immediately. Uh, All these rallies with the European citizenship. Of course, you know. And, willfully. And again, the you know, if I do this substantially, the economy will crash. So they have sort of a, a bandwidth in which they can actually make decisions. It's really limited and it's becoming more and more limited by the reality that is global. And then one of the things that have, that, that's happening, and I write about that uh, relating to Greece, is that politicians now tend to rotate, to gravitate, sorry, towards the cultural, towards the religious or the traditional, because actually the big decisions are made for them. And these are mainly economy and sometimes politics. So they can't really make these decisions. So they will have a battle, for instance, in Greece with Macedonia. So it will be called Northern Macedonia. Instead of saying, oh, we have a problem because the European troika is crushing our society and leading to higher poverty rates than we have ever seen in modern Greece since the civil war. No, 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 no. Let's have a battle here about the name of Macedonia. And all the newspapers will be dealing with that. So this gravitation towards cultural, first of all, it serves the right, the populist right. And secondly, it only goes to manifest and demonstrate how people are not really in control through our, their local power structures on their life, but the local power structures, which are so full of themselves, want to uh, give the impression that they're still in control, and they are not. But isn't this some, in, in a way, an attack on, uh, you know, like the Keynesian fiscal and monetary policies where governments try and stimulate and influence the economy? Because what you're saying is the economy is this, is this behemoth, this like massive engine that can't really be steered one way or another by the, the whims of some government raising or lowering the interest rates. In the end, it's going to straighten itself out so best to get out of the way uh, first of all you, you know it governments can but it will have repercussions and the best example is of course trump if you think about what trump promised to do and what he really did there are a lot of things that he promised and he did uh you know follow up mainly on the international sphere vis-a-vis -vis israel because he didn't have to pay a price for moving the embassy, for instance. So it was just easy for him to do. Or building a wall. He just decided to build the wall, and then he issued these addicts, and I was at the wall, and everybody knows that he didn't build, you know, he didn't build much of it. And the Biden administration is probably not going to continue that. But he did promise to save coal. And I was there, and I described this. There's a family of coal miners that I follow up during these years in the book, the Quigley family from Mariana, Pennsylvania. And the, the Quigleys did return. You know, he, the, Joe Jr. was fired, uh, and then he did find work during the Trump administration as a coal miner again. Great, but it wasn't because of Trump. And coal 
plants all across the U.S. continued to close. The coal mines continued to close. So Trump couldn't really save coal. What he could do is to lower taxes on the rich, which he did. And the stock market went crazy with that. So there is stuff that they can do. I'm not saying that there isn't. And also, you can always spend more money if everybody else does. And that's what's happening today in the world. Still, those who are giving the cues are in the U.S. So if the U.S., if the message coming from the U.S. is protectionist, you see this reverberating around the world. And it did during Trump. Now and during Trump, the message is this is a pandemic. And nobody's talking about crunch. Nobody's talking about going into a fiscal kind of <coughs> environment. Everybody's talking about Keynesian uh, economy. And I don't even know really right-wing economists right now saying it's not the way to go. So it's very mainstream. Uh, in the end, if you want to control it, if you want really to control it, you'd, you can do that. And the example of, is, of course, the subprime crisis. And the fact that we stayed on really very limited interest rates, very low interest rates since then, and we, we don't have any tools anymore. So we will go boom and bust, boom and bust, again and again and again, because this is the economy that, that's been built. And to this, you've got crypto coming in, you've got many, many Dogecoin. elements. Dogecoin. And, and, and everybody, no, nobody's talking about this. Yeah, but, but of course the Chinese digital coin. Nobody's mm. talking about that. Nobody's seeing that. But the Chinese are really serious. And this is, by the way, this is not a blockchain coin. Uh, not of entirely. Of course not, because you cannot control. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, no, this is not a blockchain thing. So uh, we're seeing the, the idea that there is a leader to this liberal order. It was built by someone. There's an architect. The architect probably sits like in the Matrix, you know, in Washington. So they built it but then they lost control of it. They cannot control it anymore. It's just too big. Nobody can really do that. But can, you can still have policies within it. You just can't, when you're a small country like Israel, or even Sweden, or Belgium, say, I'm part of globalization, and I'm also running the show in this country. It's simply impossible. It's not true. That's, that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that you can't have, you know, within this bandwidth, you can't have better policies or worse policies, but it's rather limited. And, the, the, you know, you're thinking that your prime minister makes a lot of decisions that are really crucial in most places in the world. It's just not true anymore. But in China, you can, if you're the leader of China, you can decide where to draw the line, right? Mm -hmm. With internet, with economy, whatever you want. It's, it's a question. To what extent can you limit the distribution of ideas? Uh, I bring a conversation in the book with a Chinese friend of mine and I say to him that Xi, uh, Chairman Xi, is the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. Of course Xi is much more powerful than Mao. I say, how, how, you know, how is that possible? And he says, Mao didn't know what everyone thinks. And Xi does. But does the fact that he knows what everybody thinks because he controls the social networks and because China is really having the most sophisticated, uh, you know, technology-based 
info and data apparatus on its own citizens, does it say that they can limit ideas? The, the example that I bring in the book is the Jasmine Revolution in Tunisia. That, uh, Of course, in Tunisia, it's not called the Jasmine Revolution. This is the way that it was defined by the Western media. It's called the Dignity Revolution in Arabic. And then after this spring, this was the beginning of the Arab Spring, began, the Chinese saw that Jasmine became code in their own networks for democracy. So they had to ban, you know, the use of Jasmine on WeChat and other platforms. And they also uh, took down songs from YouTube, a famous Chinese song with the word Jasmine. And they also started to limit the sale of Jasmine flowers. And what you see here is really the construct of a global consciousness. Can it be prevented? Can we withdraw into the dark? The answer is yes to, to your comment. And this is what the book is saying. The book is, is saying uh, in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end, that it's about progress. There's no problem with people revolting. Uh, I think that the revolt is healthy. I think it could. we can use the revolt in order to have a more sustainable world order. Like we saw with GameStop, for example. With many things, you know. We, uh, th there is something truly healthy about people saying, why do we need this power structure there? Okay? Let's think about it. You, you can say it's healthy because you are a libertarian. I can say it's healthy because I'm a progressive. We should rethink and recalibrate our structures according to technology. It's really healthy for people to say, why shouldn't we have a direct democracy if we, everybody has a smartphone? Maybe we should have that. Maybe that would be better. People should be demonstrating and protesting. It's much more healthy for them to be in the streets protesting for their own needs than being in their houses saying everything is lost and I'm, you know, a complete cynic. That's, that energy of the revolt can serve in order to, to solve, you know, parts of the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, having a tax regime in which the super, the uber rich are not simply exempt from paying taxes, unlike, you know, me and you. We, we can use that. But the problem is that the revolt is being used by either regimes or groups in order to organize an uprising against the notions of progress and enlightenment. So this is what it's being channeled into. And we're seeing this with the pandemic right now, which I know you want to speak to about too. Yeah. So you're really seeing how something which is the mistrust, distrust of institutions, for instance, in Israel, the distrust of the prime minister is becoming, let's deny reality and let's object sometimes on the fringe elements of the uh, radical left wing. Let's object to vaccination because the prime minister has brought these vaccines and because we, we, we distrust him. This is generally happening in many places. So you always have fundamentalists and anti-vaxxers and charlatans and you know, professional liars. You always have those guys around. And they're, they're usually fringe. But the question is, when do they enter mainstream? And their entry to mainstream is through the sentiment of the revolt. Everything, all power structures are hollow and corrupt. Then comes a guy 
and says, you know, I've said it for 50 years now, and Islam is the answer. And that's what the Muslim Brotherhood has been saying for more than, you know, 100 years. But now they're saying, you know, come to us. You are revolting because you understand. No, they are not revolting because they want to reject, uh, you know, 50-inch TV screens. They're not revolting because they don't want their children to study in Stanford. Everybody wants their children to go to Stanford. Uh, that's not the reason 95%, you know, uh, of those revolting feel that way, or those minors in Pennsylvania. No, they don't like Trump. They didn't believe Trump. They understood that he's really problematic. But they wanted to append the structure in which, like they said to me, our children are as smart as children in California. But nobody's building an Intel plant here or on, on the Appalachian. Nobody's building this. So what are they supposed to do? So they came to that consciousness. So you're saying basically that fundamentalists are leveraging the grievances of the of of normal people who are simply suffering maybe the uh, the aftermath or not the aftermath but the uh, the so the consequences and the shockwaves of globalization. So fundamentalists are leveraging and taking advantage of these people in order to pull them into the extreme and then destabilize yes but this is um I, I i hope that my observation is 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 less less obvious in that sense because it's it's obvious fundamentalists always talk to grievances but one of the things that i say is that usually liberals and mainly i would say you know progressive politics which is infused by materialism by the marxist concept of materialism uh would say the reason people turn to fundamentalism or the reason that fundamentalism operates, it, it's always about ignorance and about wages. No, 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 no. So the book says, no, it's, it's about meaning. Fundamentalism is a detailed attack against notions of enlightenment and it's part of modernity. Fundamentalists want to present themselves as people who came you know, and stayed the same like Abraham. <laughs> They're not, right? There are, they are an invention of the modern age. And they have a project here. And the project for fundamentalists, as is the project for nationalists, and it's by no mistake that nationalists, I'm talking about ethnic nationalists, uh, use fundamentalists, Islamic fundamentalists, and Islamic fundamentalists use ethnic nationalists. And their project is the same project. They want to have progressive liberals, or liberals at all, both right-wing conservatives, and left-wingers, they want them in enclaves. They want them, I write in the book, like those tribes in the Amazon, you know, that you see from above, and they will have their enclaves sometimes, you know, in, you know with this metaphor in, in urban areas, and they'll be shooting arrows at the helicopters, um, while those people in the helicopters with the power will be the Marine Le Pen of the world. But also the fundamentalists, you know, that we've seen trying to rise through the, the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring is a good example because it was a liberal demand by liberals, by liberals. Uh, that was hijacked. What, at a certain point, it was hijacked by, by Islamists that, you know, are really far away from these notions. So to, to specifically to your question, it's not only about fundamentalism and 
the thing is that really the world order is not sustainable. And if we don't start really you know, talking about it and changing it, then and really acknowledging the revolt and understanding why people are revolting and sympathize with those revolt, and I do, um, not generally speaking, not with everyone, of course, but with those middle classes, then we'll find ourselves in a place in which it will be hijacked again and again and again by people who will use it in order to destroy progress. And societies will go back into the dark. They will turn back irrationally to the dark and to poverty and to war. And it will happen if we will not fight for it. And the way to fight for it is not by status quo, is, is, is by, I think, because I'm a progressive, is by always looking forward in order to, to, to find the place in, of change. Some say, now I'm segue, in a segue to COVID, some say it is happening right now because you say that governments have not much power, but here we see in the age of p- pandemic that governments took complete control over people's lives in democracies. It's using tactics and tools that were implemented first in China in a dictatorship and so what do you make of that how, how is it possible you said that in globalization uh, governments have no no power but here they took control complete control over our lives so how do you explain that first of all we're in the middle of an emergency and in in pandemics uh, locality is important your mayor is suddenly important uh, your kindergarten the supermarket you go to, because you can't go any further, right? And for many people, saying that locality is really suddenly important in this global world is really reassuring, because they feel safer. <laughs> well, not for most people. So I, if I would, would come to most people and I would say, you know, it's either your locality will take care of it, or it will be, you know, some institutional, international organization that really understands and it doesn't take into account the narrow political needs of the Netanyahu government, many people would say, I would take the professionals any day. So locality is a comfort only when you trust that locality. And one of the things that I, I've seen, for instance, is polls and studies about the level of trust in countries across Europe. Of course, when the level of trust was high, when the pandemic started, it remained high and even became higher. I'm talking on Scandinavian countries mainly, but not only. But when the distrust was high to begin with, uh, the pandemic only made it worse. So in many places, the political systems... Uh, are broken, but it will be a stupid generalization of me to say that it's broken everywhere. Uh, many places that people are really happy with the decisions that governments have made. For instance, New Zealand, Taiwan, you know, people acknowledge that their government made the right decision. But if you look at the Western world, like Europe and the United most States and Canada... No, most, people, most people do not. Most people yeah. think it's, it's a terrible failure. And I think that when history writes down what has happened in the COVID era, it would say that science and scientists rose to the moment and they had this incredible operation of having more studies out, understanding the virus better, 
but also having vaccines in enormous speed. But it was a politics, our politics, that failed everywhere, almost everywhere, and has exposed itself to be hollow and defective and unresponsive to people's needs and simply not suitable, not suitable to deal with these challenges. And in order not to be, you know, on a, a too general note, the best example is, of course, the way that China was handled to begin with. This is international politics and not local politics. But basically, you know, if you have a global village here, and we've been all told that it's a global village, and we can go to the Ben Gurion Airport, and we can buy a ticket from here, you know, immediately, and everything, it's a global village. And at the end of the village, there's a house, a big red house. And people from that house continue to draw water from the well in the center of the village. But one day there is a disease spreading in that house. And you don't have any international body that can knock on the door and say, hey, guys, we want to help you. Or we want to know what, what is that disease and where exactly that it, it comes from. And the only way to enter that house is basically by coming to the Chinese Communist uh, Party and just, uh, <laughs> you know, just asking really nicely and waiting for six months, then we have a problem. It's not a global village. It's not a global village. It's just a bunch of houses there. And it's a threat because in a global world, local crisis is never local anymore. We saw that with a subprime crisis. We saw that with the Syrian civil war. Syria is not an important country. And the meaning of Syria for the politics of Brexit, for the politics of Trump, was so crucial. And now we're seeing this with, with a pandemic. And in all of these cases, we needed international bodies that at least would be able to gather information and will have some sort of a supranational authority. And we don't have those. And the reason we don't have those is because those local politicians would not give them that power because this would threaten them. And sometimes local societies would not want that because they feel threatened by those supranational bodies. And one of these, the problems here is that there is no sustainable story to tell about globalization that people would support. So politicians everywhere can't go on a campaign trail and say, oh, I'm from, I, I am for supranational bodies and expect to draw a lot of votes. I'm not saying that they never do that. Macron tried to do that. Hillary Clinton tried to do that, talking very positively about globalization. But it doesn't have soldiers. You know, there is no credible narrative because the narrative is either it's a global village. We're going to all sit down and sing Kumbaya together. And nobody believes that. This is the 1990s. It's great. You know, uh, it's the end of history. Everything's just going to be dandy. And, you know, property rates are going to go down. They did go down. But inequality in many places went up. And it's really important for how people feel. And on the other hand, the other story told by, I don't know, you know, the, what was once labeled the Chicago school is that it's all supply and demand. Guys, it's all supply and demand, and that will make your life better. So one narrative is completely false, and that's the narrative of the Kumbaya global village. It, it simply it doesn't exist. And the other narrative is a narrative no one will vote for. 
even as an, an observation could be true, but nobody's going to vote for, oh, yeah, you're living in an engine of supply and demand, and you're the fuel. But what you're talking about, Ethan, do you want to... No, no, go but ahead. <laughs> Today you're the spectator. Yeah. It's too early for you. <laughs> what, you're, what you're talking about, I, I would interpret as policing, a world police that can pol police countries like China or, or Russia. But what it will lead to... Well, why do you think it, it's not going to uh, police the US? But go ahead. Because it's, it's yeah. not a coincidence that the pandemic started with China. No, I, think, I think that if the pandemic would have started in the US during the Trump years... I, I have to tell you that I don't know what would have been worse. I don't know, because I, the, the Chinese um, bought the world a lot of time by employing a, really a, a lockdown that in the US would be simply unfathomable. But they hid, they hid, first they hid information. Yes, Until so, now they hide information. I, I, I completely agree, and this is exactly what I'm talking about. But if I want to be a realist about that, if it would have happened in the U.S., it would have spread to the U.S. and to the world much more quickly. And we know that simply because of the air travel and the fact that no one would say, oh, I have 200 uh, cases of a respiratory disease in California and I'm going to close down the country and tell everyone, do not leave your house for four months. And this But is what they did in, in a 10 million city you know, for th three and a half months, I, I, uh, called Wuhan. So it, it would have been even worse. But when you want to form this global body that will take care of things... No, no, I don't uh, think... Or, I, or, I, I don't, or, I, I'm not saying that we need, you know, a I'm not um, preaching here for full-scale global government. This no, is not but my agenda. let's say an upgraded UN or whatever no, let, let's you want to No, it. Let, let's be very specific. Let's say the WHO... Mm -hmm. has the right to say to a country, I'm entering the country within right. 24 hours. Right, but, but, but that's no, that, the that's thing. It. Do you think that this, is, that this is too much for our world? No, but the thing is, impractical West, Western countries, countries would probably uh, co cooperate, but totalitarian, dark countries like Russia or China would not, and what you're talking about would lead to a, a Cold War, which we're already at a, on a certain level. But, For, but it will just bring... And the, the Cold War, and where would that leave us? It will leave us with two nations, like the again the two values, two I, different I th value I th sets. Look, after World War Two, we build institutions. Uh, I call it. I labeled this the era of responsibility in the book, in the beginning of the book. And I say about that era that you need to know two things about it. This was the era of people who actually saw the world burn down. And the most important thing about that era is that they had specific and subjective memories, not memories in history books, their own memory of a world burning down. So they built a world and an order, both East and West, based on a rational discourse, based on global cooperation, both East and West, in communist countries, in Western countries, capitalists, They talked about the same values. They just said that their interpretation for the good life, their Aristotelian good life, is better. So Marxists, communists, and capitalists, they argued who would give people the good life. And that's a good argument. That's a really good argument to make. Uh, and that was the Cold War. And 
the institutions built after the war were really aimed at not allowing countries to go on uh, an occupation spree of the terms, you know, of the blitzkrieg uh, that we saw with uh, Nazi Germany. Now, our world today has different that challenges. And in order to sustain that these challenges, to sustain any order, we will need to have bodies with some international, some more international authority. Not seeing that is irrational. You are absolutely right to detect that most who resist that would be, you know, dark, darker countries uh, in their regimes. But I'm not so certain. Uh, think about the criminal court, the International Criminal Court. I do think it's politicized. I do think it's problematic to an extent. But the idea is a good idea. Is it? Yes, I mean I it doesn't. So, yeah. It doesn't have any. Uh, to the point about the WHO as well. There's no jurisdiction. There's no. There's nothing practical about it because it can't do anything. So a country says no. What is it going to do? No, but if if it's a signatory to the Rome, <coughs> uh, to the Rome Treaty, uh, no, it can't say no. Meaning other countries. No, they, they, it's a club of countries that that agree between them yeah. voluntarily. Voluntarily that, you know, that, that the International Criminal Court, the ICC, has jurisdiction. And for many countries uh, that we don't think about, this solves a lot of problems. We saw that, for instance, in the tribunals about crimes uh, relating to crimes uh, against humanity or war crimes in Africa. Some countries didn't want to have, you know, the, the courts held in their own country according to their own law because of political pressures and otherwise. But the idea that there are crimes that go beyond your local law, beyond your politics, and are international, are a recollection of World War II. But there, it's in the end of the day, it's a representation of the current world order. And so, I mean, it's nothing if it's not simply uh, uh, upheld by the powers that be, right? So, I mean, it's it's... The U.S. is going to hold the most power in whatever it is, in whatever structure it is, uh, and and probably most Western nations. This is one of the. This is one of the things that we need to correct. Look, we cannot have a Security Council with five permanent members, including France and the U.K. Why, you know, France? With all due respect to France and the U.K. and their contribution to Western civilization, and I'm very inclined towards the UK. I was born there. You can't hear. Uh, I, 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 and I studied there, and I lived there. But, you know, what about, and could we have, please, you know, an African country in the Security Council? Isn't but it, it's not going to happen. No, it is going to happen. It is going to happen because this world order is crumbling. It's disastrous. But then you see, like, it's the, not representative. It will collapse. Like the the only question rights. is, will it collapse? Will it collapse by us doing that in a measured way and bringing this reform, or it will collapse after it, be, it will become so irrelevant that we'll see a catastrophe? But but I mean, how will it collapse by by uh, Africans gather, you know, coming together, invading and, Europe and, and taking and, control and, of no, it? But no, but seriously. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, the, the people at the, you know, on the ground firing arrows at the helicopter. I mean, that's what it'll look like. Mm. I mean, how are, how are we going to upend 
in the end there's a power structure that exists because the there there is power at the top um oh that's that's a a good remark um many power structures do not exist because there's power at the top or from the bottom up if the power is really only on the top at the top and it's a top down kind of power structures it, it will collapse uh because it needs to have legitimacy power structures in societies live by legitimacy we don't have enough police officers really uh if if nobody gives them the legitimate uh, the legitimacy of employing force uh you know everything will collapse and to the question i if i was uh, a young uh, african leader uh which of course i'm not i'm a, a not w- yet, white privileged uh, <laughs> male uh, from from israel um uh, i would uh, probably say you know guys you have this body called the un you have a security council it's either you allow us uh to be part of the security council or you don't get to make you know decisions here now it seems that they're really weak but africa is the fastest growing continent um africa is uh, probably the best place today in which you have opportunities for resources and allocations and i think that someone will see that what i'm saying is that thinking the power structures that are that we agree that are not relevant will not collapse that's irrational uh I, in the end if it doesn't have a you know a good explanation why you don't have any central or south american country in the security council this is just preposterous and 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 you cannot run the world like that and if you you have a world in which you have international travel of millions of people every hour or and you don't have the who with an authority to ask for information and to sanction those who do not give it information it's not sustainable now uh, i'm not saying it will collapse tomorrow morning but what i'm fearing and i write this in the book we should always fear what we do not discuss and what do you know we do not discuss is the prospect of another great war we do not do that because the cold war is ended so for a generation now more than a generation we don't think about another great war and we should know that after everything is said and done you know uh, pandemics and quarrels about the icc the biggest threat uh, is is another world war and and in order to to tackle that we need to have power structures international institutions that are simply relevant to the crisis that we have and if we don't have them like you say and if countries will not give them power uh, first of all you're right we we you know it won't happen without countries giving them legitimacy and power but the meaning of that would be catastrophic for for our children and I, you and me know that we are not headed the right way for years and years now it's very apparent that the world is it, you know is going really i don't know what i want to say off the cliff but if you look at almost every kind of parameter you know is democracy rising no it's not what's happening with climate change is it tackled no what about biodiversity crisis which is becoming even better bigger you know the biodiversity crisis what about the connections between east and west 
What's happening with the rivalry between China and the US? But economies, happening... Western economies did uh, have a good decade. Yes, Western economies had a good decade. Uh, an inequality uh, group. Which isn't bad for everyone. It depends on your political point of view. And of course, if you're up and down in the society. <laughs> not that. end that you are at. But to, he- to end with a happy note, uh, Israel is probably one of the best places to be right now when it comes to COVID, wouldn't you say? Uh, yes and no. Of course, yes, because you'll get a vaccine here. People will actually beg you to get a vaccine and not just any vaccine. But Some people are talking about forcing you. To yes. Get uh, I, so no problem. You know, people I know people in the US, uh, 70 year old, just still waiting for, for a vaccine. And in this country, you know, we were really begging 25 year old to take the, the vaccine. So that's great. And, and they're working. <laughs> And, and, and they are working, and I'm publishing the data that says that they are working. I should say that I respect and, of course, trust that data because it's, it's coming from renowned scientists. I cannot measure it myself to quality. But I would like to see, you know, how it influences our mortality and the levels of the disease much more than I've seen until now. And I'm saying this gently because we still have many people, you know, in hospitals and we're still in the midst of an outbreak. And that's the second point. No, because the best place to be is, of course, in places that you don't have a lot of disease and they don't need to vaccinate in such a huge operation during an outbreak. And there are many countries like that. We simply don't talk about these countries. But I'm not talking about only Finland and Iceland and Denmark and Taiwan, South Korea and Japan, and I can go on. New Zealand. And New Zealand, of course, and Australia. So I, I, if, you, if I had to choose between being in a country with a huge outbreak uh, we're seeing in Israel, but it has the means to vaccinate at the rate it does, and being in a country that says, huh, I can keep, you know, infection rates really low, and I know how to do that, and I have the trust of my public, and I'm going to wait and see with the vaccination operation from other places and study what's happening there, uh, how to do it better. You know, only ha- time means money. Time. If you failed at the, at the beginning, I don't want to say it's a poor man's choice what we're doing right now because it isn't. But at the end, it is not the A-list. Uh, of countries. The A-list of countries here, and this is not two countries, it's not only Taiwan and New Zealand, the A-list of countries know how to limit the spread of the disease to an extent that they will have relatively normal life and they do not need to vaccinate so (coughs) quickly uh, the way you do. In the end, vaccination is an intervention. It's a pharmaceutical intervention. And if you can delay it, and if you can find other ways to do it, I would rather be in these countries. Now, some would say, no, but you're here in Israel, you know, you deal with that. And I know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky to have our healthcare system. Israel has really a tremendous healthcare system. And I'm so happy that people around the world know that because of the vaccination attempt. I've, been, I, I've known that for many years now, after living in the UK, uh, the NHS is, is, a, is a good healthcare system provider, public healthcare provider, but it's nothing uh, compared to the Israeli healthcare system. That's the truth. You know, having lived in both places, uh, the healthcare system in this country is just great. 
And I, I feel tremendously lucky to have the vaccine on the one hand. And on the other hand, I'm really worried about having the vaccine during an outbreak. I think it, had, it might have, you know, certain results which one might be not uncalled for. Okay. okay, I wanted it to be optimistic, but uh, well, <laughs> at least I, we tried. I, they bring me in order to, uh, say, you know, uplift parties. <laughs> I'm, I'm usually brought for that. <laughs> okay, so the book, it's yes. called Revolt, the Worldwide Uprising Against Globalization by Nadav Eyal, Amazon Book Depository. Look for it online. It's not that not that hard nowadays yes, search for it highly recommended uh also, also on audible oh ah, did okay. you read it on audible like can, did, did i did you, you hear you the voice oh no 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 i'm not the voice i'm not oh. the voice for anyone worried benedict <laughs> cumberbatch uh, no, no. Mm. um <laughs> uh, interesting but, but yeah. he's um uh the person doing it is uh very it's a talented. really good, very good name and he's reading it nice. tremendously well and i really recommend that this is the way i so read most books these also days. Also, President Clinton, we didn't talk about, but he read the book. Yeah, he read the book and he even supplied uh, his uh, blurb to the book. Cool. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and also you're on social media, right? Yeah. Where can people find you? On Twitter, it's um, Nadavial. They can probably find me quite easily there. If they just Sometimes Google English Nadavial. tweets also. Yes, yes, yes. I <coughs> talk a lot about COVID-19 also in comparison to the world. Uh, TikTok. No, not yet. Snapchat, okay. No, not yet. <laughs> Working on it. Clubhouse. Okay. Clubhouse. Maybe soon. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm considering it, but I don't own an iPhone. Mm. Ah. <laughs> okay. As you shouldn't. Yeah. No, I, sh I really shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Before we go. Um, yes. The, the episode, guys, sponsored by Masa Israel Journey, as we mentioned uh, at the beginning. You got to check them out. MasaIsrael.org slash two nice Jewish boys spelled out T-W-O, nice Jewish boys. Masai Israel Journey has great opportunities uh, for internships uh, in Israel. Check them out. You can do them even remotely and you get funding. MasaIsrael.org slash two nice Jewish boys. Also, we are yes. collaborating with the forward. Forward.com. Go to forward.com slash 2NJB, guys, and you get a special discount just for 2NJB listeners. Yes. You get six months for 15 bucks. The Forward has great news, great opinion articles, all through a Jewish lens. Also, Otsheva, uh, IsraelNationalNews.com. Check them out for the Israeli perspective in English about current events. And last yes. but not least, the Australian Jewish News, AJN.TimesOfIsrael.com. We talked about Australia. So, yes, yes. Check yeah. them out. AJN.TimesOfIsrael.com. And, of course, lastly, we do this on our free time, guys. So if you want to help us out, go to 2NJB.com slash donate. That's it. Thank you so much, Nadav. Thank you so much, Nadav. Thank you, guys. It was my pleasure being here. Bye. Bye.